0: The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Savor 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Friday, June 14th, Time and Space, Rare Beers, featuring Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewery.
1: Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming to and We really appreciate that. My name is Paul Gatz. I'm director of the Brewers Association. We're the not-for-profit trade organization for America's small and craft brewers. And uh, we bring this event to you, and we hope you're having a good time so far. Um, so no, now I applaud you for being interested in this. This is, this is great to see what's going on here. Uh, a couple announcements first. Uh, one is we ask you to turn your cell phones off uh, to vibrate or off. Um, your choice um, wait until you're interrupted <laughs> um, there's uh wait until you're prompted uh before you sample uh um the beverage because there may be some points made that you want to taste and so that way you won't find yourself with an empty glass when there's something you know a salient point being made um I'd like to thank all of our supporters here um, particularly uh uh, Manhattan Beer Distributors, as well as Spiegelau. They're the room supporter and certainly like to uh, recognize them. Also, uh, Craft Beer Radio is recording these sessions, so don't say anything you wouldn't want to get on the internet. And uh, uh, In a few days they'll be posted on craftbeer.com so you can listen to this session again or some of the other sessions that you're not attending. And but We'll make them all available there. Um, So what uh, we have here now is a very special treat for you. Uh, Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewery is going to give a seminar on time and space and we're going to taste some rare beers. It looks like most of you know Garrett, but I'm going to do a little intro anyway. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) He's uh, the brewmaster of uh, the Brooklyn Brewery. Uh, He was also editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Beer, the author of the Brewmaster's Table. If you don't have these books, you should run out and buy them because they are excellent books. Uh, And he's also one of the foremost authorities in the world on the subject of beer. Uh, He began brewing professionally at Manhattan Brewing Company in 1989, uh, joined Brooklyn Brewery as brewmaster in 1994, uh, he's hosted more than 800 beer tastings, dinners, and cooking demonstrations in 14 countries, so I guess this makes 801. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, he's, he is well known, not just in the world of beer, but also in the world of food. He's been nominated uh, as a finalist for a James Beard Award on a couple of occasions. Uh, he's uh, renowned as a beer judge. Um, he's judged all over the world, including the Great American Beer Festival, the World Beer Cup, and many other countries. Um, you know, Garrett's, uh, he's done it all, he's seen it all, and he's really leading the efforts on uh, beer and food in this country. So, please join me in welcoming Garrett Oliver.
0: Well, I guess if I've done it all and seen it all, I should be doing the astrology salon later on. I'll tell you what your future is in beer. Um... <laughs> I just got back from Italy, you know, and it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating, you know, to go around the world these days, you know, as an American brewer, because, you know, in the old days, and I'm talking about like the 1980s, you know, early 90s, yes, I am that old. Uh, I took the Ramones Bowling. I, I am not joking. I did take the Ramones Bowling. I put on R.E.M. as the opening band for the English Beat in 1983, you know, so, Yeah. You know, and there, I see some of the younger people who are the English beat. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. Um, and what you would get is sort of uh, people would say, you know, you say, I'm an American brewer. Nice to meet you. And they'd say, oh, yes, we have heard of your American beer. I mean, open derision, not even the slightest pretense, you know, uh, uh, that uh, what we were doing could be interesting, you know, or, or whatever else. I remember I went to, I was invited just before I came to Brooklyn Brewery. I was working for a place called Manhattan Brewing Company, uh, which was, of course, in Manhattan. It was a brew pub, a very large one. And they invited me to speak at an IPA conference in London. And it was very evocative because it was held in the Whitbread Porter Ton Room, which was literally, our meeting was happening in the old fermenter of, that, they, that they fermented Whitbread Porter in, you know, back in the day-day, <laughs> you know, in the 1800s. Um, And this was an IPA conference. This was like 1994. And they brought me over, to be fair, to roll a grenade into the room. And I did so, you know, uh, dutifully. Uh, Tom Tomlinson, uh, who some of you may remember from the DC beer scene, had his IPA and I had mine. It was called Rough Draft IPA. I thought that was very clever back then. And, uh, uh, you know, because it was, it was a pretty massive IPA for its day in 1994. And the British brewers tasted it, and they said, well, this is very amusing, but uh, no one's ever going to drink anything like this. And uh, I said, well, you know, you guys have some very nice beers, and I fell in love with beer, you know, uh, uh, living here, but I have to tell you, none of you actually make IPA. And it was like great harumphing around the room because we had all the great brewers of England in there, but they were making IPAs that were 3.5%. And we're like, no, that's not going to cut it. You know, uh, this is the way things going. And what I find fascinating now is that, of course, IPA is a British style which died out in England, and it was popular for a while in the United States, died out in the United States, was reborn in the United States, and now, in Britain, they look at our version of their style, and then they brew our version of the style, and then they sell it back to us. <laughs> so you're like, wait a minute, you know, okay... It comes over like, okay, it's like, it's like a tennis game. Like, over it comes, you know, we knock it back, and then they send it back. You know, I swear, next year, I'm going to make, like, Edinburgh IPA. I'm going to sell it in Scotland. <laughs> Just to mess with BrewDog for fun. Yeah. No, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's great. You know, it's, it's wonderful. And, no, but here's the other side of it, and I'm not complaining about this, because this is actually a good thing. Um, but it's a problem for a brewery that starts to be known. And of course, with social media these days, everybody knows everything at all times. uh, And that's awesome, but you used to be able to be sneaky. It used to be that you could make something and you could slide it in quietly under the radar. You could give somebody that you knew really wanted to sell it and you could say, okay, I got something special for you. These days, about 30 minutes after you have slid that thing under the door to your pal, you get the phone call from Tony, from Tony's Sports Bar. And the phone rings, and you pick it up, like, hey, Tony, how are you doing? It's like, you know, Garrett, I was good. I was pretty good this morning. I'm not so good now. It's like, what's wrong, Tony? I've been reading blogs. (laughs) And you're like, Tony, Tony, you really really shouldn't read those blogs. I hear you got this new stuff, it's called Black Ops, and it's really nice. And I need 15 cases down here right now. You're like, well, Tony, I only made 80 cases, and you can't have it. Besides, you're a sports bar. Oh, now you're telling me who I am? <laughs> now you're telling me who I am. Let me tell you who I am. I'm the guy who sold 500 kegs of Brooklyn Lager last year. How about that? You know what? Now you don't know me. Now you don't know me. How about this? How about I don't know you? How would that be? <laughs> And you're like, oh, my God, like, I just want to make some beer. (laughs) And now I had, like, click. And you're like, oh, no. So, you know, several years ago, I wanted to make barrel-aged beer. And I told the sales guys that I could make, you know, I was going to make, like, 80 or 100 cases, 200 cases. They're like, oh, no, 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 please don't do that. Like, we'll all be killed. Um, But I got frustrated because, you know, we only had room to put away that many barrels at that time. And so I, I couldn't figure out what to do. So I came up with this idea, and this is uh, something that the accounting department is not, you know, does not love, I suppose. We're gonna make the beer, but we're not gonna sell it. <laughs> what, a, what a great business concept. We're gonna make beer, and we're not gonna get money for it. That's excellent. So you know, we made a beer called Black Ops, and it was not on the schedule. It did not show up anywhere. There were only five people at the brewery who knew that the beer existed, and they all worked in the brew house. So we made the beer, and then we hid it in the warehouse, in the barrels, Woodford Reserve barrels, and uh, uh, for months on end. And we were sitting in a meeting, and we we're talking about this and that. And they're like, you know, we really should try some new things. I'm like, guess what I did? <laughs> and a, a, a short time later, we came out with Black Ops, and it was only a beer that everybody at the brewery got a case around the holidays. And that was it. You know, we made like 80 cases. But then suddenly, within a couple of months, I started to have these conversations. You go to a party, and you say, hi, I'm Garrett. And they're like, I know. And you're like, well, nice to meet you. They'd say, I've had black ops. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know. And you step back and say, who are you? <laughs> Why have you had black ops? And they would tell you a story about how they were connected to the brewery. And, you know, so when that was born, what we called the ghost bottle program, and these are all the beers that we make that we can't, for various reasons, make enough, at least right now, uh, to sell. You know? and, and really, for us right now, if you make less than 1,500, 2,000 cases, it's very hard. You know, It sounds like a lot of beer. Even as a brewer, it sounds like you've got some beer. 2,000 cases, that's some beer. But you take 25 states, and you break it down to cities, and you go to the distributor, and the distributor has six cases, and he has this many people, and you end up going to a shop, and they get four bottles and they never make it to the floor because they call their people and say, I got a bottle for you, and that's it. Which is, I mean, it's cool in a way, but it's very frustrating. So the beers that we're serving to you this evening are beers that we don't sell. And what I like to say is, like, there's two ways of doing this, basically. You can drive the price up to the point where nobody really wants to buy it except for people who are kind of collecting beers or whatever else. And you say, okay, you can wait online, starting at 5 o'clock in the morning, and when you get here, you can only have two bottles, and they'll be $80 a piece, and this, like, that's not our style. So we have a different style. We'll pour it for you for free, but you have to show up. So if you've actually had these beers, that means that you've met us, and you cannot have the beers unless you've met us. And that's what the ghost bottles are. So I, I think they're fun. Uh, uh, most of them have some serious bottle age on them, actually. Uh, some bottle and barrel age on them. I guess the average age of them is five or six years. And uh, I think we're ready to start pouring the, right, the first one. I will tell the people in the back, just so you know, the first one, wild one, is pretty wild. It will try to leap out of the glass at uh, uh, the bottle. That one in particular I might open close to the table. It's not a gusher, but you gotta be careful. So, Wild One, you know, this is a, a, a variation on a theme. Uh, many of you may have had our Belgian strong golden beer called Local One. Um, we first brought that beer out in, uh, in, in 2000. We first brewed it in 2006. Um, and it was really a turning point for Brooklyn Brewery. You know, I think that at the time, in 2006, you know, I certainly think we were a very good brewery. Um, we, you know, we pioneered a lot of things, um, especially things like uh, uh, collaborative brewing, which you know we basically invented in the mid '90s um, and had done uh, quite a bit of before. You know, it uh, it became the uh, great uh, kind of theme of American brewing that it is uh, these days. But I think we hadn't taken things to a different level, and in that year we decided that we were going to. And part of what we wanted to do was to uh, create beers that were refermented in the bottle in the old way. And what I mean by the old way is that there's really two ways to do bottle refermentation. You can do it the way most breweries, both here and in Belgium, do it, including most of the Big Trappists, which is to fully carbonate the beer beforehand and then do a small bottle refermentation that gave you a little boost at the end, and then you say it's bottle condition. And many very good beers you know, are made this way. Um, and I'm not dissing it. But what we found is that our very favorite beers, the ones that really turned us on, there was the one thing they had in common is that they were actually all bottled flat. Saison DuPont, Roule, uh, uh, Occle Extra, you know, stuff like this that really spoke to us was all bottled flat, and we decided we wanted to do that. And we ran into a problem, which was kind of interesting. We thought, well, we'll just consult certain brewing books that will tell us how to do this. It was not written down anywhere in any language anywhere in the world how to do bottle re-fermentation, real bottle re-fermentation in a brewery. I was shocked. I went to Vine Steffen and they were like, No, you must be joking. <laughs> you know, nobody does that anymore. You know, Why do you want to know? Uh, uh <laughs> you know, I was like, Well, you know, we think it'd be pretty cool. They're like, Why? You know. I mean, I mean, you, you may not realize. I mean, the only truly bottle-conditioned Weiss beer you can get in the United States, you know, from Germany is Schneider Weiss. You know, everything else is done, you know, uh, 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 a new way. And I think, I, I, I think that it's something that shows, you know, in these in these beers. And you know, you, you can you can certainly argue with it because you can say, well, I can't ta- I can't see it from my house. I can't taste it. Um, but I think that there's something there, and it wasn't something we were looking for, but it was something that we found. So. We decided to take that as a leap out into, into thin air. And we had a Belgian brewer named Bert Van Ecke, a really young guy, uh, scarily smart. He was the head brewer for Simburn Artists. And I met him when he was doing a panel on the CBC. He'd never been to New York. And I'm like, dude, how about if you came to New York and I showed you around New York and you spent three days with us and you showed us this bottle conditioning thing? And these days, I actually give talks on bottle conditioning because there's still... Aside from the Oxford Companion to Beer, which I wrote a piece on it, but it's interesting how these things are really passed down in families. Um, they are not really part of, uh, uh, you know, if you go read the big uh, professional brewing books, you will not see anything on bottle conditioning. Uh, you will not see anything like two lines, three lines on dry hopping uh, in those books. So it's interesting. A lot of the stuff that uh, is part of uh, American craft beer these days is, uh, is not. How is that beer coming along there? Oh, you guys have it in the glass. Can I have one, or does that, did you put one down and I wasn't even looking? Excellent. Because I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm playing for time up here. You know, I'm... I was, I was, I was stretching this out. I'm like, uh, I'm like, get the lion. You know, it's, it's time for, okay. It's like, I guess I was like, when is he gonna talk about the beer? Like peripheral vision, <laughs> so 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 useful. Um, okay, well, the beer you have in front of you, and I started off to tell you about this, is based on a beer that we made called uh, we make every day called uh, Local One, which is a Belgian strong golden at nine percent. Um, it's closest to Belgian strong golden. It also has some elements of triple, some elements of saison, but anyway, it's extremely dry, uh, and it is fermented uh, first of all with uh, one Belgian yeast strain and then re-fermented in the bottle with a second Belgian yeast strain. We took this beer, and we put it in second-use bourbon barrels. And by second use, I mean that we had used them once already. So they came from the distiller, we used them once to make Black Ops and uh, uh, and a beer called Dark Matter, Uh, and then we uh, put the beer in those those barrels. And at first, our lab guy in particular said, you know, this is going to be disgusting. I'm like, no, 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 this is going to be cool, just wait. And we tasted it the first time, like, you know, two months in. He's like, see, you know, this is horrible. And it tasted like, you know, a big bag of coconuts or something. And we're like, no, 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 no it's going to come around. And four months, he was like, no, this is horrible. At nine months, I was like, eh, eh. They all like, Here, he's like, okay, it's pretty damn good. And then we put it in the bottle. And uh, our friend Peter Buchert uh, from uh, New Belgium sent us a, uh, a Brett strain, which we cultured up. And we put the beer uh, into the bottle with Brett. And this was an idea that I got uh, really from Vinny Zalurzo at Russian River. We were talking about different ways to use Brett. This was 2007, uh, 2007, 2008. I think it's 2007. Um, and so, uh, you know, we uh, were talking about how best to use the Brett. And, uh, we, you know, we took in on the idea that the refermentation of the bottle was the place to use it. So this was really the first of our beers that really went off in that direction. And it's got about five, six years now uh, 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 in the bottle. And uh, I really love this stuff. And you know, the first time that we ever served it in public was at 11 Madison Park, which uh, a few weeks ago just uh, got uh, number five in the world on the San Pellegrino list uh, of uh, top restaurants in the world. Um, and those guys have made a real commitment to beer, you know, which is wonderful. You know, when you go there, they have 140 beers on the list, and uh, one of the best menus you'll see anywhere on earth, you know, and uh, they have people who are really dedicated to it, so it's a cool thing to see. It was also one of the very first beer dinners that I ever went to where you saw the full three Michelin, you know, star service in service of beer um, with spectacular everything, just as many people, glassware. And it was interesting, on my way home, it was only then that I realized that it was maybe one of the first beer dinners that I'd ever done uh, where there was no mention of wine as a reference point. In fact, wine had not even actually occurred to me during the entire evening, either as a reference point or as something to compare to because beer suddenly was in the room doing what it was supposed to do. And this beer, we actually served with a cheese course. It was uh, a course that uh, uh, was uh, Grayson, which is a wash rind cheese from Virginia, done in the sort of uh, Talagio style, really wonderful, that has a nice funk to it. So what you're seeing here is a beer that has no residual sugar anymore. Uh, it's actually completely, completely dry. And that may surprise you, because it has a little bit of residual sweetness, it seems. Uh, that's mostly the effects of alcohol at, 9%, at 10% now. Um, also, some very fruity characteristics that you have going on. The hop character having rounded out in the barrel, you know, over time. The vanilla comes forward, and then the Brett I think really nicely integrated uh, on top. You know, and there are all kinds of Brett, and this is not the horseiest of the bread, It's like one of the, I don't know, funky, earthy brettes, You know, if you like. Uh, and I love the way it's uh, it's integrated here yes please. um so this is the uh, sign when the guy is standing here with the bottle to uh to to drink up you know i see i say i i, I see people are uh i'm glad you're paying attention, but you're not doing enough drinking, you know which uh, I believe is the thing that you actually came here for I need to do some too uh it is uh, uh it is not brett C it is russellensis um but uh, um it's interesting i think that there are so many i i wonder whether or not i think lambicus is off by itself in a certain way i do wonder whether Brett is uh is so different than a lot of uh, Brusselsensis strains we're playing with one right now we're actually bringing out uh the name that we gave to this beer is wild one we found later that uh and it's a one as in local one with a number we found out later that Bell's actually has a, a, a beer that they have commercially called Wild One. So, uh, uh, you know, when we, we're actually coming out with a version of this beer next year, which will be called Wild Streak. So we actually did lay down uh, dozens of barrels uh, of this, and it's been in re-fermentation for a while. Um, and the bread is coming up nicely. We used a different strain this time, a Lambicus. Uh, that uh is uh is is funkier indeed, here I am talking about uh you need to drink up and I need to drink up sure you could <laughs> yes, thank you excellent before we move on any questions about uh you know about the wild one you know we uh, by the way, our, our house chef is here, Wave at everybody. Andrew, uh, uh, you know, we're we're about to going to open a. Uh, you could clap. Uh, <laughs> you you, <laughs> you don't know him yet, but you you know you you will, and then you'll clap later. Uh, but um, we do a lot of cooking demos, and uh, you know, I'm a cook, and Andrew's an actual chef, which you know, I actually cooked for him once, and which was a bit intimidating. Um, but we cook in front of audiences all the time, and one dish that we do is boneless quail stuffed with foie gras, truffle mousse, and a duck demi-glace. And we demo this in front of the cl- in front of the crowd. Uh, um, and uh, that beer, uh, uh, Wild One, goes really nicely uh, with that dish. All those nice funkinesses going together. So this beer here is the one that's going to take me the longest to explain. I'm going to need you to kind of stick with me here because it's a uh, a long explanation. It's one of my favorite things that we've made. We could actually serve this at any point, you know, during uh, these four beers, but kind of decided that we'd, uh, uh, we'd put it here in its kind of natural order uh, of taste. But I really love where this has ended up. Um, this is part of a series we call Crochet Rouge. Crochet Rouge means Red Hook, and it refers to the Red Hook Winery in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Red Hook Winery uh, does some vinification with Abe Schoener, who is one of the top guys or the top guy in the United States in natural wine fermentation. So this beer also started as local one, but then went in a completely different direction. When they do their wine at the Red Hook Winery, they do it the old school way, which is not to pitch any yeast. You crush the grapes, the fermentation starts by itself, and you have a completely natural fermentation, and that takes all the yeast out of the countryside that came in on the grapes and, you know, in, in the winery, et cetera, and like lambic, that's what ferments the wine. Well, what drops out of the wine after the fermentation is referred to as lees, and the lees are basically just everything, mostly yeast, but little bits of whatever, dirt, <laughs> you know, et cetera, that drops out at the end. And sometimes during wine production, they'll actually stir the lees up to keep them active uh, and to keep the fermentation going. Well, what they do is that when they would move the wine, they would get in touch with me. I would go over to the winery, which is like five minutes from my house. They actually do their growing in, in, on Long Island, but they do crush and vinification and bottling and everything else in Brooklyn. And in a bucket in my car, I would bring the Lees to the brewery. Now, the first time they gave us the Lees, they offered them to me like they were a gift. Like, hey, we've got some Lees. And I was like, that's nice. Uh, so you have some uh, yeast that's dropped out of your fermentation. That that that's excellent. I'm good for you guys. Uh, they're like, uh, I, oh, And I was trying to figure out why would I want these leaves, and the answer was the leaves are magical. I'm like, okay, magic sludge, you know, from you know a winery near my house. But they were so enthusiastic that I should have it. That it was like it would have been rude not to show up and get it. So I went to get this stuff because they were so bubbly about it. And I'm like, sure, please. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Kind of like, you know, dad on Father's Day with a tie. You know, it's like, nice tie. And I always wanted something that would warm up my shaving cream. Um, and I took it back. <laughs> you know you did it at some point, some of you. And, uh... uh I, so I went back to the brewery, you know, and I said, okay, we're going to take these lees and we're going to put the beer, you know, local one, in a barrel with these lees. And everybody said, why? I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I know about lees aging. I know about lees stirring. I don't know what might happen, but let's see what happens. And six, seven months later, we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> and we called the, the winery like, do you have any more of these lees? Uh <laughs> We need as much of this as you can get. Very, very small winery, not much of this to go around, and that's why this is a ghost bottle. It simply isn't something that can be done on a commercial level. So we, we now will put you know, beer down with whatever leaves they have to give us. We will age maybe. We have 20 liters at most uh, going into a 200-liter barrel, uh, usually 10 or 15 liters you know, of this slurry. But it's basically gathered all of the microflora from the local countryside, and we age it in the barrel for about nine months to a year. And during that time, all the residual sugar in the beer is eaten up, the beer acidifies, the natural Britannomyces strains come forward, and you have something which kind of sits you know, on the border between wine and beer, even though it's 95% beer, there's very little actual wine in it. Um, it's taken on a lot of the characteristics of the terroir of the countryside. And in that way, it's somewhere between, yes, a little bit of wine, but more beer and, and, and something reaching in the direction of Lambique. And it's something that I really want to work on a lot more uh, in the future because I think that uh, we can bring that ambient environment you know, uh, uh, back into the brewery I think that wild fermentations are great, but this is just a different way of looking at it, that you actually use the winery, use is a bad word, they're my friends, but use the winery as a, uh, hey dude, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be like, do you mind if I just use you as a collection point for yeast? Um, they do make great wines, you know, but yes, I mean, you know, they have acres and what I love is that you can, t- you can take acres of land and basically... You know, through this process, put it into, you know, 15 or 20 liters of liquid that I can then put into a barrel and have influence a beer in this way. So this uh, version is called rosé because uh, some of you, if you look in the right light, especially if you have some yeast in your sample, you'll be able to see a slightly salmon-like color. Uh, there were two barrels that were aged on Charonnelly's, and one barrel that was aged on Pinot Noir Lees. And so that little bit of Pinot Noir Lees actually gave uh, that slightly blush color to the beer. So 10%, about 10.2% and no residual sugar. A little bit cold. I think I'm going to ask the guys in the back probably to pull everything else up out of the ice. I don't know if they can hear me. <laughs> But they can yeah, anything that you've got on ice or that's still chilled you can take it out because uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna warm them up. Any questions about uh, you know about this beer? Uh, the question was whether the oak was previously used. Yes. Uh, and the the reason there is, you know, uh, that we didn't want first-use oak, which would, you know, and as you know, I'm sure uh, bourbon barrels in particular. Uh, by law, a bourbon barrel can only be used once to make bourbon. You know, I don't know why. Someone's cousin probably had, you know, the barrel, <laughs> you know, you know. The, the 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 barrel production factory is like you know, and so until recently, bourbon barrels you know have been you know something that uh, the uh, uh, the distilleries were desperately trying to get rid of now, interestingly, one thing you may not be aware of um bourbon barrels are tough to get, and they're very expensive, and they didn't used to be they were made into planters, chipped up into stuff for barbecue and whatever else. You never probably would think about this. But one of the uh, uh, things that comes from the rise of, uh, uh, of several third world countries, particular India and China, is that we have difficulty with our barrel market. Because it turns out that when people get some disposable income, the first things they actually want are beer, meat, and whiskey. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order, but they want beer, meat, and whiskey. And, now, who makes more whiskey than anybody else in the world? India. India makes more whiskey than any place else in the world. And Indian whiskey is terrible. (laughs) Really, really terrible. You know, Chinese whiskey is almost as bad. However, they came up with a great idea. You know, they would do the same thing that we did. They would age their whiskeys in American oak. Now, most American oak has gone off to Scotland for many years, and it ages almost all the Scotch whiskies. It ages almost all the Reposado tequilas that you get out of Mexico. They, it, it ages Tabasco sauce. Those barrels went everywhere. Now, you know, you, you know, your little brewery comes and says, you know, I'm buying 100 barrels from you a year or whatever else. The Chinese come and say, we will take all of your barrels, <laughs> and we'll pay for them up front. And this little business you have on the side that you didn't even want will go away. And they're like, awesome. And you, and it, and you go to them next year, and you're like, uh, you know, I need 100 barrels. Like, oh, we're done with the barrel thing. You know, they got it all sewed up. So it's kind of interesting. You would never think that you're competing, you know, as a, uh, as a craft brewer against India and China, you know, billionaires uh, uh, that are making whiskey, but that's, uh, but that's the case. Anyway, yes, second-use barrel. First-use barrels we're using for black ops you know, and things where we really want a big barrel influence. You know, here we're looking for some character out of the barrel, but we want it to be a background note. We want the micro-oxygenation you know, that comes through the wood. We want the softening effects, uh, uh, but we're not looking for you know, that, big, uh, that big hit of wood.
1: I feel like with a a beer like this, you could really challenge wine drinkers who don't drink beer, and to make them ghost bottles kind of, like,
0: steals that opportunity away from them. Uh, uh, believe me, I, yo, yo, your pain is my pain. Uh, 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 well, there's two, there's two parts to that pain. One, when you have a, a, a winery that small, the amount of leaves they actually have to give you is like nothing. Uh... You know, what it actually takes, you know, 2,000 barrels or 2,000 kegs, or uh, rather cases, okay, this part of this room, if, if the take this part of the room from here to there and probably a little bit higher, higher than the ceiling, that's about what you need in barrels solidly filling this room to make 2,000 cases. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but about that. You know, in a place like New York City... That space, of course, is very valuable. Then you got to get the barrels. And then you have time. And that is why I decided to call this talk Time and Space. You know, (laughs) because, you know, when you make beers like this, time and space is what you need. Um, And space in New York City is at an extreme premium. Uh, 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 And time, you know, really has to do with, well, you know, uh, uh, how much are you using up that valuable space and for how long? And also, you know, it, it is do you have the mindset necessary to wait? You know, it takes a long time for this stuff to come around. You know, uh, sours don't happen very fast. It's possible to make a barrel-aged beer really quick. You can put something in a barrel, have it out of the barrel in eight weeks. It's probably not good. But, you know, we've had those beers, you know, that taste like a, uh, a beer that somebody put a shot of whiskey in. Well, you know, you do it warm and fast, that's what happens. You know, low and slow is a different matter, just like with barbecue, you know, and uh, you do get a different result. And with, when you're looking for a microbiological result, something to take, you know, you just got to wait. You got to wait, you got to go taste, you know, you learn over time what works. But, you know, it's uh, you'll actually get different leaves in different years based on things like weather and rainfall you know, the, the actual makeup of those leaves will be different based on what happened that year. And that brings you a little bit into the winemaking area. So what we tried to do, and I'm already ahead of you here, <laughs> is to take some of these leaves or some of this stuff and see if we could grow this group of yeast up. But, of course, you have a different substrate, you know, the substrate being the wine or the, or the wort in this case, and it goes in different directions. We did have a, uh, a graduate student in microbiology who was working on all kinds of, you know, very advanced stuff. Uh, he came and he said, I'm a home brewer. I'd love to do some stuff with you. It's like, okay, we'll trade. You know, you get to hang out here and do this stuff, and then you take this stuff and pull it apart microbiologically. So we have these ret strains and things like that out of, you know, this stuff that we can then later try to culture up and use, but every time you think about something like this, you're looking at something that is like a year into the future, you know, at least, which is not usually, you know, the brewer's mindset. Um, And it's something that, uh, you know, we've had to learn, I personally had to learn in order to get this stuff that you have, you know, you have to be cool, you know, with with the waiting part. Um, if I could get more Lees, and I'm working on various ways to do it, <laughs> uh, uh, here's the thing. And I, and I, I hate to uh, call out my wine brethren, but wine is one of the most manipulated you know, uh, 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 foods that you can find in the market. Um, and by and large, it's all undercover. There's a liquid that they use in many of the wines out of California uh, called Mega Purple. Mega purple is a substance which is spun in spinning cones out of cheap bulk wine from all around the world, and it is this thick, black, purple substance that basically will add the color to your wine and some of the flavors to your wine that Americans think makes good wine. Americans tend to think that great red wine is almost black. We are unique in this, you know, fallacy brought about largely by Robert Parker, um, and if you want to read a fascinating article, there's, it was in the New York Times a few years ago, but you can look it up, it's called The Chemistry of a 90-plus Wine, and I, you know, if you're interested, I recommend you write that down. The Chemistry of a 90-plus Wine, there are companies that guarantee you a 90-plus score you know, from these wine rating agencies because they will take your wine, no matter what it tastes like, and like, oh no, it will turn out like this. By the time we're done, you know, you will not recognize this stuff at all. And so my point here is, there are many people who say they do natural winemaking. Almost all of them are lying. Almost all of them. Oh no, we didn't add any yeast. You know, we didn't uh, kill everything that was in the natural fermentation, but you get it under the microscope, And they're either, you know, you have a monoculture, one yeast strain, or everything's dead. You want another great name, they have another stuff they use in wine called, and I love this, Death Star. (laughs) Death Star is what you add to your fermentation when like you, you would have a natural fermentation, but you don't have the guts for it. So as soon as you get your juice in, you add Death Star and it kills everything. And then you have a blank slate that you can then add your, you know, your yeast to. Now, that actually is, in a way, the natural way of modern brewing. We boil it, that's how it ends up being sterile, and then we add our, you know, our yeast. Um, I think we're finding our way back to you know, some, of the, uh, some of the flavors that come out of natural yeast, obviously, and you see that as a big part of what's going on in the American scene right now. But it was never supposed to be part of winemaking, really. Um, until winemaking became the kind of big business that it is today, but of course I digress. Uh, we're going to move on here to our uh, our third beer, which uh, we call Younger Creek. I looked up, you know, to see what my Flemish would be, and uh, uh, Younger means young, and if it got old, it would be Uda Creek. Um, and I'll decide, I guess, at what point it goes from one to the other. This beer is the youngest beer of the evening at just over a year old. Uh, it went into barrels last May, early May. It started off as our belgian, uh, uh, you know, Belgian-inspired belgian Dark Abbey Ale Local 2. And we aged it on uh, sour cherries from Door County uh, for five months. And then, uh, and this was also second use barrels, and then went, uh, went into re fermentation with a Brett Lambica strain. The second beer we called uh, Crochet Rouge Rosé. Yeah, now there are several versions of Crochet Rouge. There's a, you the Riesling version, a Sauvignon Blanc version. There are two Riesling versions, actually Sauvignon Blanc version, uh, 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 Rosé. Um, uh, I think we did serve some of the Blind Tiger, yes. Yeah. And each one's a little bit different. What's the other interesting thing is that to take different barrels and check them out and say, okay, we taste 15 things in one day. These three go by themselves. They're too good to blend. This one's okay, but not that interesting. That one's kind of funky but cool. Wait, these two together are really good, and so those go together. And that's basically that's the basis of a cuvee. It's a blend, Um, and, you know, we're really kind of finding our way around these things that have their own directions. You know, they go off in different directions. You discover where they've gone. But I can say that from the Red Hook Winery particularly, and we've tried stuff from other wineries that hasn't worked out as well, but from the Red Hook Winery in particular, I don't think we've had any barrels that we didn't really like. It was just a matter of how they were blended together best to make something cool. And it's very hard when you're trying to decide... You know, okay, you have only two barrels of this out of which you could make maybe not even 40 cases. And then you have five barrels of that, which isn't as good, but if you put these two barrels the five barrels, you get something really nice and you have, like, a lot more. So are you going to separate these two out and you have, like, 35 to work with? Or are you going to kind of use these to ennoble this blend? And, you know, we sit around and we talk about it and we argue for like an entire afternoon and people have their little factions. You know, uh, know, I'm pushing for this to go by itself or I'm pushing for this to go into a blend. And uh, it's fun and interesting. You know, this is something that I want to do sort of directly um, and something that I would like to do in the future, you know, as a a beer we might do on a regular basis. You know, we are looking right now for a space where we could actually stand up, you know, up to 1,500 barrels at one time. and that would allow us, obviously, to be able to bring some of these ideas uh, uh, you know, you know, out to people. But uh, as a crick, this is much stronger than regular crick. This is like 10.5%. Uh, uh, again, really dry. Now, we found that when we added the cherries, uh, we did get a lot of sugar from the cherries. And we had a hard time fermenting the rest of that out. So there were some successive fermentations to get that back down uh, uh, below about, uh, 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 two Play-Doh, you know, because if you go to re-fermentation, especially with Britannomyces, the problem is that Britannomyces has the ability to pretty much eat all the sugar, you know, in the fermentation. And any number of brewers have found out the hard way that, you know, if you don't get the beer dry enough in the first place, eventually, and it may take a couple of years, but eventually you will have a grenade, you know, or a gusher at the very least. You know, so we try to drive all these beers down, you know, to uh, a, a good degree of dryness uh, so that, you know, if we are going to put Brett in the bottle, uh, you know, we don't have that problem. Now, this beer is young enough that I think it does not have a huge Brett influence, but I can smell it and taste it. It does kind of blend together a little bit with the, uh, uh, the flavors of the, of the cherry stones, which themselves blend together, I think, nicely with the flavor of the second-use barrels. And I can tell you, again, the idea of time and space. Uh, this beer, when it came out of the barrel just in October, you know, after May, five months later, came out of the barrel in October, and we were like, okay, this tastes like cherry soda. I mean, okay, better than that, but, I mean, it was so massively, obviously cherryish that we were like, maybe we need to blend this down to, you know, to kind of get it to chill out. And I was like, okay, no, let's let's see if we can, you know, over time, over bottle age, et cetera, you know, does this fall, you know, into a different place. And I really like where this is in its evolution. I think it has an, an awful lot further to go. Uh, I'll be fascinated to see where this is in a, in a year, you know, or two years. But right now I can tell you it is amazing with, like, duck breast, uh, you know, and foie gras, I mean, on a food side, you know, you can pretty easily see what you could do with this. You know, the uh, the sweetness that it has is, again, what I would refer to as a false sweetness. Uh, it is, uh, uh, it's more about, you know, alcohol gives you sweetness by itself. Alcohol tastes sweet. Um, And those of you who may be wine people, it's sort of like Alsace Gewürztraminer. You know, it may be vinified, completely dry, with no residual sugar, but the Gewürztraminer always tastes sweet. You know, it's not a very high acid grape, and it always has that estuary quality. And that's one of the things that you have coming forward here. All that fruit character, you know, gives you a characteristic of sweetness, even when actual sweetness isn't there. Most of the acidity is actually coming here from the cherries themselves. You know, we haven't added a lactic culture, which would give you a sharper acidity over time. You know, we may do that in the future uh, with some stuff. But, you know, right now I'm thinking this is really fun. And, you know, I, I had in mind, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, the creeks that are based on lambic, but some of the creeks that are based on sour browns, you know, like the old leafments. mints. Um, but obviously, you know, a, a lot stronger. I, I like the fact that the, the, the Cherry character is very much, very Cherry, very present, but I think that it's, uh, it, it's uh, uh, it, uh, it was at a cartoon level at one point, and has kind of uh, fallen into like a really cool you know, uh, uh, situation, and right now it's good with some things, and in the future I think it's going to attenuate and, uh, uh, and become more subtle and more rounded, the funk will come forward and you'll have something else. Yes, sir. So,
1: so Garrett, with the uh, the time and space problem you talked about earlier? Who or could you do a collaboration with to make this sort of stuff general release? Because this does not, this should not be reserved only this room. This is fantastic. (laughs) I'm
0: glad you like it. I'm glad you like it. I mean, this this is more of a problem of you know of space. Now, I would have put up a lot more of this, uh, uh, you know, several months ago. But last year, they had a, du- a tough cherry harvest, and it turned out that, say, five, six months ago, like, by the time we kind of realized, hey, we'd love to put up a lot of this stuff, uh, there were no cherries. You know, we don't think about the seasonality, you know, of some of these ingredients. But if you want, say, you want to make pumpkin ale. You know, when we first made pumpkin ale, we make a, a, a beer called Post Road Pumpkin Ale. And we look to make it in, in August for September. There's no pumpkin in August. You can't find any pumpkins in August. All the pumpkin in the United States is gone by August. Maybe it's in Libby cans, you know, on the shelf by then. You are then waiting for the next harvest. Every harvest, we buy pumpkins and freeze them over, you know, the winter to use in the next season because that's when the season happens, and you're not going to get anything then. So it's kind of humbling, you know. You're used to, you know, you call the, you know, you find your guy, you call up the guy, he gives you the stuff, you know. That's the way it's supposed to work, you know. But uh, it doesn't work that way, you know. So we're like, okay, we have no cherries. So it's like, okay, now I'm waiting for a cherry harvest. Um, and when the cherry harvest happens, you know, uh, uh, I will be able to get more cherries. I have any number of ideas on how to get, you know, different types of fruit, more leaves, et cetera. Some of them I'll tell you, and some of them I probably won't. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, we're we're looking at uh, uh, you know possible you know uh, partners when it comes to fruit production and uh, uh, and various fermentation productions that are natural fermentation productions that we can you know uh, uh, we can work with and bring you know that stuff into the brewery. So we are definitely working on it. Uh, this is the first time we've actually worked with them. Um, we, these are from, uh, from Duart County. I forget the actual name of the producer. I actually asked, uh, 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 asked Vinny at uh, Russian River. I'm like, you know, okay, you know, you're doing some great stuff with cherries. What do you got? And it's funny, you know, so you start working with this stuff, and we put the cherries in the barrel, and then you try to get the cherries, uh, uh, the beer, out of the barrel without the cherries. And, you know, I thought, okay, you know, this won't be so hard. We'll put a little mesh bag around this or that. No. <laughs> Doesn't doesn't work. We actually had to, and I thought, you know, uh, you know, we learned this from other brewers. We have to to do do this beer. You have to drill a a hole this big in the barrel head, set up like a a a hose system, and and run the beer out, you know, directly out of big hoses. You can't like use your normal uh uh, you know your normal pipe system, you know that what you would use. I'm just uh, keeping an eye on the time here because I know we're. We're coming up on it. So we're going to serve our last beer. I know we can't, we can't run long because uh, they need a few minutes to reset the room. I told you at the beginning about Black Ops. Um, so this is Black Ops from the original, uh, from 2007, the first one that we ever did. But here's the thing. Black Ops is normally aged in a barrel. It used to be from f- for four months. These days it's for six months. But this is a version... Uh, Which we call late bottle vintage. Uh, This is a version that actually spent four years in the barrel So it went it went into the barrel in 2007 it came out of the barrel in 2011 and so now it has uh, uh, four years of barrel age and two years of bottle age and Here's the thing about something like that. We we hid these barrels not only from everybody else, but also from ourselves for four years. We were like, we try to pretend these didn't exist. We would top them up every once in a while, you know, with the next successive years version of black of straight black ops with no, you know, with no wood. You know, you want to make sure that you don't have too much headspace which will allow you know the development of acetic acid bacteria. But when we tasted the beer finally in twenty eleven, we were astounded at how we had gotten everything that we wanted out of the barrel. And nothing that we didn't want, you know, we didn't, you know, we didn't have uh, 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 any negative characteristics. And the tough thing to decide at that point was, were we actually going to go to refermentation or were we simply going to bottle it straight? You know, because we'd never had something that old in the barrel, and we we're like, wow, this is really beautiful. And wouldn't it be a horrible thing if we put sugar in it? and, you know, some yeast and sent it to refermentation and somehow ruined it. You know, so we thought about actually bottling it flat, Um, but we decided that we thought that we, you know, we could bring this forward, you know, in a nice way. And uh, this is a beer I think about all the time because it really does, you know, astound me. It has some of those uh, soy sauce-like characteristics, you know, that I love in a lot of old beers Um, but it hasn't overleached the wood. It hasn't brought out, you know, too much tannin or too much of anything. It's mellow. It's married. uh, It's kind of, uh, uh, you know, what you want out of an older version of something like this. And I love our regular Black Ops. I really do. And I think that that is a better beer for desserts, and it's a bolder, more muscular thing uh, than this is. But I also love where this is in this very elegant a uh, 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 completely married-together uh, uh, style, and it shows what, you know, uh, what winemakers, you know, have, uh, and many beer makers have known for, 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 for centuries, um, that you really can, out of long barrel age, if you have the right characteristics in the first place, uh, bring something out of it, um, you know, where, you know, great things really do happen over time. Just as a small aside, in the brewery, in order to make sure that our salespeople don't, uh, don't uh, get their hands all over it and whatever else, uh, the beer is known within the brewery as poison. <laughs> because it's labeled poison. You know, Meaning, like, if you touch it, you are going to die. <laughs> um, so I think we only ever had about 35 cases of this. Um... You know, it was uh, all, unfortunately, that we made. Uh, you know, we're, we're learning to ignore more barrels and leave them down for longer. Um, but, you know, this is, in a way, a relic, you know, of our first foray, you know, uh, uh, you know into this area. And uh, I'm definitely grateful, you know, that it's come through time uh, as well as it has. You know, I'll leave you with this. You know, and here's a thing to know. Um... You know, as you go around the room, you know, and you you know taste the beers, you know, from uh, you know from many of the brewers, especially those you know who have put these things you know out on the market, um, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot more involved than than people often realize, not just uh, whatever the skills the brewer brings to bear, but an element of risk uh, that I think often is not depicted anymore in beer literature and in beer bloggery and whatever else is out there. When you see someone out there with a sour on the floor that they are putting out on the market, you know, this may be a person who left a good job, remortgaged their house, and put everything on the line to do this one thing that might not work, you know? And it's hard. You know, it's really, really, really hard. and not everything works the way that you want. Things go in their own directions. People are taking leaps of faith. And I think that when you see American craft beer, what you see really is that element of risk and that leap of faith, you know, and and that passion. And that's really what makes craft beer run. So, you know, I I see people sometimes look at a bottle of something and say, oh, well, you know, it's $30. What I want to say to them is like, you have no idea <laughs> what, you know, I mean, look at what, you know, what Rob at Allagash has gone through to bring you, you know, some of the things that he's done. You know, look at what some of these guys have, have been through. Like, they didn't have to do that. that. You know, there were much easier ways to make a business and to make money and whatever else. You know, it, it really is a, a, a labor of love, um, you know, and it is, you know, for us, too. And I think that what these beers here are about for us is that as we become a bigger brewery, you know, my, you know, and everybody hopefully in this room is becoming a bigger brewery over time. um, Our goal is to become more interesting over time and not less interesting, um, always, and to do things. You know, I want to look back on us in 2013 and say, yeah, we were, we were pretty good in 2013, but not like we are now. The way that we look back on ourselves in 2006 and say, well, we were pretty good back then, but not like we are now. You know, the whole act of being a creator of anything is to eventually, hopefully, come somewhere close to being the brewery that you pretended to be the entire time. You know, the artist you pretended to be, you know, you put up a big game, but, you know, in the end, you're never really who, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're talking, you know, your, your, your stuff when you get out there. And success, you know, if you can have any, is to come anywhere near your own personal idea of what you are, you know, and what you've been projecting. And, you know, as we do these things, we're on that asymptotic curve where we get a little bit closer all the time, and you never actually arrive. But there you go. Cheers. Thanks for coming
1: out. All right. Thank you so much, Garrett. I think uh, those are some of the most amazing beers I've ever had in my life. And... uh, You know, that was absolutely fabulous. That's the best salon I've ever seen in my life. Great, Garrett. Great job. Good night, and thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Sabre 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.